Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 1994's drag queen adventure, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yay! <laughs> Which, right off the bat, because there's really no other reason to put it in there, like, this movie reminds me very much, in my own personal life, of a completely different 90s drag queen adventure film, which is on the list and is called Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Which came out in America, has a very loose same plot, and was only like 11 months after Priscilla came out. But the weird thing is, because people have looked into this, there there was no uh, thievery of any kind, like... It's not that it's not that people saw Priscilla and then were like, "We're gonna make that," but in America with Wesley Snipes. Wait, what? Oh, it's an amazing movie. Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo are drag queens, and they basically like footloose save a town. Wait, what? I need to see that. It is a it is a very good movie. In my opinion, it is a better movie. In the rest of the internet's opinion, it is an inferior movie. So you'll just have to see for yourself. I look forward to seeing myself. If it's on our list, I'm really excited. Knowing our crypt, she'll put one movie in between the two and then have us watch that like four weeks from now. And it'll be great. That is a classic crypt move. Yes. (laughs) She's so saucy, our crypt. She's like... All right, I'll give you a break from the gay movies or I'll give you a break from the vampire movies and then we're going to go right back into it. (laughs) Uh, You know, you just put it in the universe. I'll laugh so hard if one of the remaining vampire movies is what we pull now. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) All this to say, um, so Priscilla, Queen of the Desert came out in 1994. Chi Wong Fu came out in 1995. And for those of you wondering, like we were, The Birdcage came out in 1996. I I want to know, what is it about mid-90s Hollywood that was, like, giving queens their moment? The, the fact that they survived the aid crisis, probably, Andy. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't mean to be saucy, but like, really, let's examine the facts. We also have Philadelphia winning the Oscar, I want to say, in 97. I'll Um, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) It's either, so it's Tom Hanks won two right in a row. He won one for Philadelphia and one for um, Bubba Gump. um, Forrest Gump. 
Yes, I don't know why I forgot the name of that movie, but yes. And I don't know what order they're in, but I know it was like 97, 98, and he won two years right in a row, which is unheard of in Oscar history. Regardless, I think there's something to the fact that like the late 80s is kind of when the AIDS crisis slowed down with the discovery of new and different medicines And then you have the 90s where it's like, okay, the gay community is solidly rebuilding itself. This is a place that's really rich for commentary and art and celebration in some instances. And in others, I mean, also Angels in America, which is terribly devastating, came out around that time too. So it's like, well... That's a good point. I mean, and I, I think you're probably absolutely right. You know, I just double checked and But I'm a Cheerleader was 99. So it was kind of the the tail end of, of this wave before the wave transformed into a queer eye for the straight guy, like reacceptance sort of thing, which has never really gone away. Um, mm-hmm. So no, I I think that is a very that that's a very poignant point, and it's probably the reality of the situation. Um, you know, in the same way, this film is to our modern eyes kind of a bloodless, stakeless, like there. It, it's just kind of a safe feeling affair, and. I bet that had an absolutely different vibe in the mid nineties, but I kind of wonder if it didn't and it it felt safe and it felt okay. And it felt happy because like queer filmmakers and writers and directors were like, we need to not be sad. So here's an adventure about a drag queen meeting his son and a trans woman finding love and it's going to be an adventure. Yeah. I think the only really, um, like, stereotypically hard gay scene that we have is that there is a scene where one of the characters is is very much in danger from a very small and um, conservative town. But that scene itself probably lasts, I want to say, 10 minutes at most. Um, And then it's very safely escaped from. So like you said, the stakes, while they do dip into the seriousness, they're very light and floaty. And I kind of feel like maybe that was intentional of, look, we need to have a story about queer people that's not, um, that's not a coming out story. That's not a where we came from story. But at the same time, you do dip into... Um, what makes our trans character of Bernadette trans? We have a sexual abuse scene. So it, it seems light and floaty, and then it just dips down slowly and examines the harder part of the queer experience and then goes back up to being, ha-ha, two drag queens and a trans woman being sassy at the edge of the desert and then dips down again and then comes back up. So. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's just one of those things of, like, we'll never have the context to know because we don't have a time machine, but, like, I would love to know what 
'90s audiences thought of this. I would love to know what um, what the '90s Australia drag scene and drag culture was like because it it certainly seems like it's got to be at least more prevalent than not because it it was allowed to be the setting of a movie, you know. Yeah. And that's that's carried over even to like. You know, one of the most famous drag queens I know is a proud Australian, and that's Courtney Act from uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. So mm-hmm. a lot of stuff to kind of like ruminate on it. And we're talking kind of around the movie and and not diving into it terribly deeply. What did you think of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Well, we should probably tell our audience what Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is about before we just... Yeah, if if you want to. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's kind of helpful in a film podcast. But, I mean, truly, Andy, it's it's not... I feel like our audience already would have gotten it anyways because the story of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is two drag queens, a trans woman, they're going through the desert... And it sounds very simplified, but it's it's not. It's they they go to a drag show at a resort to perform cabaret. And along the way, they realize that the person who booked their show is the mother of one of the characters' son. So it's like, it's kind of a gay buildings, Roman sort of coming of age in a different way story of like, I'm going to meet my kid. I've never had a kid. I'm really nervous about this. It's the plot is really rambly and weird, but it's endearing. Yeah, absolutely. I would put this movie square. Like there's nothing bad about this movie. I think more than anything, like in a, in a good way, in a lot of ways, queer representation in media and uh you know gay culture has blown past this mm-hmm. in a way that makes this feel very kid gloves most of the time i hereby christen this budget barbie camper priscilla queen of the desert like they're being far too easy going with it um yeah just sort of like like you can't deny that this movie is campy and this movie is like no pun or derogatory intended this is this is a very gay movie this is a movie with with drag queens and and gay men at like that is the target audience that is who we know will enjoy this film Um, Mm -hmm. but it also, I almost kind of feel like there was this, we're going to make a massive Hollywood production. That's our target audience. We know they're going to watch this anyway, but like those people know so much more about the, uh, queer and gay and drag queen experience. Let's include a bunch of stuff for the, uh, other people who will come and see this. So like, you have Hugo weaving, wandering the desert in a cabaret outfit, but you also Mm -hmm. like kind of go through this very um, basic introductory explanation to trans rights 
and the motivation mm-hmm. behind getting a sex change and dead naming. And yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. I'm, I'm trying to like say that I'm, I'm positive that this was a, a lot more revolutionary in 1994. Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to think about, you know, my childhood and how, like, if I had been hell five or eight years older, I would have absolutely turned this movie into my Bible as like, this is how you examine the world of drag. This is how you um, navigate this world as someone who is different. Um, I find it very fitting of our crypt that it placed us watching this uh, squarely in Pride Month. I was like, good job, Crypt. This is awesome. Good job, Crypt. But real quick, what the fuck, Tubi TV? We watched this on May 31st, which, you know, is the day before Pride Month starts. And I sure. noticed that it was going off of Tubi TV the next day. Meaning there is some what? there is some executive that absolutely was like, oh, we got to paywall the movie while it's Pride Month because... You know, uh, uh, there will be a lot of queer people with nostalgia and why show this to them for free when we can charge them for it? <laughs> it's almost like the governor of Florida also making a really bad decision the day before Pride Month or the first day of Pride Month. Oh, you know, the governor of Florida makes a bad decision every week, so I can't keep track of them anymore. You know what? Fair. This is why you're no longer you're moving up to North Carolina where our it's so much better. <laughs> well, the part I'm going to be moving to is. <laughs> mm. True. Our mayor is a lady of color. There you go. <laughs> anywho. But, anywho, this, this movie, um, you know, this movie, I, I said it at the end of the last episode, is very much compared to the Rocky Horror Picture Show in sort of a, like, it is a midnight matinee, come in a costume, sing along, dance along, do awful, objectively bad, awful choreography to a bunch of, like, 80s and 70s disco numbers. Um but you know, you were saying that this reminded you of a couple other things. I know you mentioned Angels in America. Mm-hmm. Um, Strictly ballroom as well, but that's more from the location. Um, okay. But also the level of camp, because Strictly Ballroom is a um, Baz Luhrmann movie, so it has similar extraness to it. Right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> I really love um, a lot of the performances in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the like the actor I enjoyed the most was Guy Pierce. Same. That would be Adam backslash Felicia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Adam, a.k.a. Felicia, a.k.a. sweet little baby Guy Pierce in what I'm pretty sure was his largest film role to date at the time. He is just this complete, utter, little, annoying asshole. But he's also just so perfectly captivating and charming and energetic and fun. And Mm -hmm. the most entertaining thing any moment he's on screen. 
he was hilarious. I wanted to hate him, but I couldn't because he was just so delightful. He is absolutely the worst character in the movie, but he's also the best. So here we find ourselves. Uh, I'm not going to get into it yet, but I think there's one character who's worse. Uh, That, you know what? True. Okay. He's the worst of the main three. There you go. Absolutely unequivocally. Because do we want to do this movie didn't age well now? I mean, let's dive in. Yeah, let's go for it. Social justice. One, two, three. I want to be PC. It's just the way to be for me. And you. So Guy Pierce's character, Adam, also known as Felicia, when in drag, um, dead names another character. And I'm not surprised that dead naming isn't as big of a thing in the early 90s, but I was mortified as a viewer from a 2021 perspective. Well, and it, it kind of is. Like, they don't they don't really go into the whole thing. Like, it's never referred to as dead naming. But, you know, mm-hmm. we have Bernadette, who is crucially a trans woman. And that is established from like the first time we see Bernadette Um, and the entire throughout the entire movie, Adam keeps calling Bernadette Ralph and you can see very clearly it it creates a visceral uh, discomfort and anger. And I'm pretty sure like the first time it happens, Bernadette kicks Adam square in the balls. So like they, they really do a job of showing like, Hey, here's what you don't do. Um, even if they and don't yet, call it dead naming, and and yet Adam consistently does it and never never grows beyond um, that problematic tactic. Well, and he's it's used as like the last goodbye to right. Bernadette. Like he he waves goodbye to her and says bye Ralph, bye Ralph, and I'm like. Really, that's the last memory you want to have of this friend of yours who you shed tears over leaving is being an absolute dick? <sighs> yeah, and like I don't want to I don't want to jump to the defense. Adam is absolutely a uh, a very he's problematic in like a lot of the same ways Ducky is problematic. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and kind of a difference I feel with Adam though is that you kind of you kind of do get this vibe that Adam is that person who projects their smile as big as possible and makes sure that they do a really harsh burn on you before you can do one on them because like Adam's hiding a lot of vulnerability and insecurity. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he also deeply has issues. You know, we can move on to the next one where he he like is straight up antagonistic to his friend, performance partner, um, you know, this person that he he willingly goes on this road trip in Tick because Tick had the audacity to have a biological child with a woman, even though Tick yeah. is a gay man. Yeah. Yeah, he's straight up rude to him, but I do like that conversation from the perspective of differentiating queerness um, from gender identity. So it's, 
I actually really appreciate there is a conversation that Adam and Tick have about Tick's sexuality where Adam says, oh, so we're straight, are we? And Tick says no. And Adam says something about being a donut puncher, which I don't even know necessarily what that means. You sweet Um, angel, stay that way. (laughs) Oh, I just got it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyway, so he says the thing about being a donut puncher and Adam's like, no. And then, um, or Tick says, no. And Adam says, so what are you? And Tick says, I don't fucking know. So I like that ambiguity that it's willing to play with. Like, listen, queer isn't just one thing. Queer can be a spectrum of things. It's why it's a literal rainbow. Fuck off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the same way that kind of softly lays pretense for an argument that drag is not an exclusive uh, gay man activity, um, which is sort of a a contentious issue within the drag community. And you'll hear people on uh, either side saying that, no, you have to be a gay man or else it's not drag. And then you have um, people who identify as male, but are not queer. And you'll also have, um, you know, women of any orientation saying that, no, what I do is also drag. And so there's, there's an interesting conversation that is, just kind of brought up, you know, that's, that's more the thing is like, if this movie was remade today, I feel like they would further the conversation, but it was made in 1994 and they were like, that's going to be too much of a conversation for 90% of our audience to even wrap their head around. (laughs) You take the luncheon tea. I'll take the ecstasy. Fuck off. You silly queer. I'm getting out of here. A desert holiday. Hip, 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 hip. Hooray. For sure. Um, I will absolutely recommend, and we'll link it in the show notes, but there is a brilliant um, article where Trixie Mattel, who is one of the most famous drag queens I know of, um, breaks down the history of the word drag. And um, she talks about um, how originally it was a word to mean, you know, just specifically men wearing women's clothing that dragged on the floor. That's where it, mm, okay. the etymology I never knew came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing is fascinating. There's both a video and a script. But it breaks down the history of like, okay, this is when the first drag ball was had. This is when the term drag king was invented. Um most reliably probably trace back to this person. It's fascinating and I highly recommend the read. Um, but I think it talks a lot about how drag can meet many different definitions. I love that. That's an awesome reading wreck. Anything like I, I will listen to Trixie Mattel uh, read a phone book cause it would be hilarious, but to know that Trixie actually like <laughs> created a, thing that is meant to be educational and and helpful i utterly adore that sure and because we're i mean we're recording in pride month it's not actually pride probably when this is getting released but i will say um just a quick side recommendation this reading recommendation was published on them which is an online publication of all things queer and i 
highly recommend it. Their weekly newsletter is fantastic. Also, I just double checked. It is uh, this is absolutely coming out in Pride Month. So happy Pride, y'all. Happy Pride, everybody. It's almost like we planned this, although I swear to God we didn't. That's not how the crypt works. It was just nice. <laughs> Next year, it'll uh, be the Babadook. Wait, what? Oh, I, I, after the recording, I have to tell you the entire thing about how the Babadook became a gay rights icon. Well, because he comes out of closets, doesn't he? That is one reason, yes. And he has a cute little sassy hat. That is another reason, yes. The Babadook oh, is see? absolutely camp. Oh, he's super camp. He's shadowy. Oh, oh, okay. Yes, we'll talk about this later. Perfect. <laughs> Getting back to Priscilla and wrapping up the um, didn't age well social justice segment. Let's talk about who I think is actually the worst character. Which oh, is yes. Cynthia, the, I'm going to say Filipino, and I say Filipino because the subtitles helpfully said that at one point she speaks Tagalog, which is the Filipino language. Um, so S- Cynthia, the Filipino bride, who is very problematic. Yeah, she's problematic as a person, but she's also problematic as a character because she's very much a stereotype. Yes. Yeah, and, and like, I I feel like the biggest thing is how much she is stereotyped. It's kind of alluded to that she was either a stripper or a prostitute or just some sort of mail-order bride situation. Mm-hmm. Um she married the guy she married, who is, you know, the, our helpful mechanic, Bob, because he got blackout drunk and apparently signed a marriage certificate. Um, Yikes. As, as the character and fitting into the stereotype, Cynthia is like insanely sexualized mm-hmm. and made object and also made just kind of horrible in her demeanor and the way she treats her husband. Cause they, they build up this whole thing where you're like, Oh shit. She's like a battered, uh, housewife who came here from, you know, came, came here to find a better life and, and clearly didn't. And then it turns out that she is this like strong willed is putting it kindly woman who enjoys exhibitionism to the point of like sticking it to her husband. Yeah. And she blows something out of her ass. Correct. She shoots ping pong balls out of an orifice. It is not made clear because this is not an X rated film, uh, which orifice (laughs) But her favorite thing to do is to dance on a bar like it's Coyote Ugly and then shoot a ping pong ball out of an orifice. Somewhere. Somewhere. (laughs) And then the next thing we see, she is leaving her husband because he does not have enough money. Yeah. Yeah. So Cynthia... Like super didn't age well, like in that way where it's it's almost 
it's sadly fascinating how it seems like if you go back far enough and you look at something that's really progressive in one way, they are totally, totally, totally not progressive in like another way. It's not intersectional. So like we have two steps forward, one step back on gay rights, but then there's this woman of color portrayed in a terrible way. There's also... (laughs) Aborigine people being the accepting and helpful saviors of the white characters, which isn't super great. Yeah, the only thing that kind of makes that okay is they they make a bit where like Bernadette, you know, they the the RV breaks down in the middle of the desert. Bernadette goes on a Bernadette goes on a trek and finds some uh, white yokel australian rednecky looking folks and as soon as they realize that it's a uh a trio of drag performers they leave them stranded to die and then a helpful and accepting uh gang of the uh, a- they are aboriginal like Mm-hmm. You know, a- Aboriginal people take them in and are just nothing but lovely and kind and wonderful. So it's kind of like this thing of like, yeah, stick it to the uh, bigoted white people and the rest of us are going to stick together. But then it is also like literal deus ex machina savior person of color syndrome. Yep. Yep. It's not great. It's not great. That one, its heart was probably at least in the right place, but I mean, that's the whole point of this segment. That super didn't age well. Um, neither did the dancing. The dancing, I, I, there's no way the dancing was ever acceptable. The dancing in this movie is <laughs> as as phenomenal as the costumes are. The dancing is atrocious. Well, and bless your heart, after uh, I finished this, you sent me a link for a video to, like, a knockoff of it on the Drew Carey show where it's, like, this movie fighting Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep. The dancing in that is better than the dancing in this movie. Yes. The dancing in that three-minute segment is better than every single dance move in the actual film. (laughs) Stinks. Rocky Horror has better music, better dancing, better everything. Sorry, Kenny. Your drag is old. Our drag is new. You know what it reminded me of? I love them, but you know what it reminded me of? What? It reminded me of watching, like, either my white friends who don't have a person of color partner or my parents dancing. (laughs) Sure. Because, like, Alex is the only reason I know how to somewhat dance. Truly, he's the only reason that in, like, one ballet class when I was seven. Um, that I I did not do well in, by the way. But that's beside the point. <laughs> sure. But um, this was like, oh, this is why white people don't dance. I get it now. Well, and, like, I got to take a step back at it and be like, okay... As far as I know about Terrence Stamp, Guy Pearce, and Hugo Weaving, in actuality, this is three straight men who consider themselves actors and not dancers and not drag performers. Like, 
you know, taking these roles in order to tell this story, but like also they got to be busy with pesky little things like all of the actual acting and such. And then they're given like (laughs) these costumes where it's like, okay, these ones have giant ostrich heads. These ones, this one's, this one's a dress made out of flip flops. This one makes you look like a, a Komodo dragon okay let's find a dance that you guys can learn in a week while wearing these costumes and we're just not gonna make it too hard because we need to get this movie made (laughs) yeah um you touched on the one last aspect of truly this didn't age well because yes i made a joke haha the dancing didn't age well but i will say I know the 90s were a very different time. It does not excuse casting a straight man as a trans person. Like, trans people were definitely still around in the 90s. We could have cast a trans person instead of a straight man. Absolutely. And I mean, no no disrespect to Terrence Stamp. Um, but he absolutely... I mean, I, I'm trying to find it now. I didn't see anything. I've never... As far as I know, he's he's not even, uh, you know, doesn't even consider himself queer, let alone capable of uh, representing a trans person. Um, you know, this, I, I, I feel like it took Orange is the New Black and mm-hmm. Laverne Cox to really knock that wall down. Um, mm-hmm. Sad as that is. It doesn't make your point any less um, valid. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now this makes what I'm about to say actually kind of sad. Part of the reason Terrence Stamp agreed to do the role is he assumed that every morning he was being put into makeup to look like a conventionally beautiful older woman. And... You can get into the incredibly subjective conversation on whether or not Terrence Stamp in makeup looks like a conventionally beautiful older woman. I personally think Terrence Stamp looks regal and lovely. Um, Mm -hmm. But the directors didn't. They thought he looked like Terrence Stamp in woman's makeup. And they thought Mm -hmm. it was funny. And they thought it was funny to never tell Terrence Stamp this until the premiere. Yikes. So that's not good. That's like reverse method acting. It's like when you get to the premiere and you find out you've been doing method acting the whole time, but you didn't know you were doing method acting. Yeah. And like it, it all hinges on the fact that like Terrence Stamp wouldn't watch the dailies, so he wouldn't watch what they edited the night before of his performance. And it it kind of reads like the directors were more poking fun at like yeah, don't watch don't don't want to watch the dailies, do you? Okay, well we're gonna make sure you don't realize this, but it just really rubs the wrong way. Oh, that's really icky, especially since. I think one of the most beautiful things about Bernadette as a character is how Bernadette holds herself and composes herself. Um, So Bernadette walks into a room tits first. She absolutely knows that she commands the room. Um, I think every scene that Terrence Stamp is in is 
one of my favorite scenes in the movie. As much as I said, Adam's my favorite. Truly, Bernadette is really my favorite. Um, just from a character perspective. I can, I can totally understand that. You know, my take on it is Adam is the most entertaining to watch. Bernadette is the one who has like actual stakes and an arc. And mm-hmm. Hugo Weaving's just kind of there. But they also needed Hugo Weaving's story to kind of kickstart the movie. And Hugo Weaving's character was based off an actual uh, drag performer. So, like, I get it. But in execution, yeah, Adam and Bernadette are so much more interesting to talk about. Poor poor Hugo Weaving. He's supposed to be the center of this movie's plot, but <laughs> nope. I mean, if it's in a constellation, he... He um, almost immediately goes from this film to filming the Lord of the Rings and going from, or yeah, going from Lord of the Rings into the Matrix into like Marvel stuff. Like, I think Hugo Weaving, uh, in hindsight, has the biggest career. Absolutely. Sure, absolutely, that makes sense. But the the plot paints him as who's supposed to be the main character and he's super not he's super not i mean he he gets his moment he gets the moment where he uh he reunites with his his um the mother of his of his son they're married they don't get mm-hmm. an annulment they're they're his wife yeah his wife yeah yeah the moment where he meets his wife and you get the utterly charming realization that they are uh each other's beards and like they are both very secure in their own sexuality and yet decided to have a kid and are like best friends. Um, I could have used more of, of that to be perfectly yeah. honest. I could have used, I, I get the whole adventures in the desert and backwater Australian small towns, but like they were so fun to be around them and, and the kid who was their incredibly well-adjusted son. (laughs) Who was just the coolest kid ever. I was like, why do I want to hang out with this child? (laughs) Cause like at like six, he's like, do you have a boyfriend? Mom has a girlfriend or mom had a girlfriend, but then they broke up and you're like, Oh, sweetie, bless you. Especially in 1994. I know. <laughs> I want you to grow up and become a senator because you'd be a good one. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, real quick, just to go back to Bernadette, you know, you brought up the fact that, like, absolutely there is no excuse to not have a trans character played by a trans actor. And I agree with you. But also, this has a really fun uh, list of people who almost played, you know, either Bernadette or Adam or Tick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I you, you're actually the one who dug it up, so I don't want to steal your thunder. But, like, seeing the idea that David Bowie was Bernadette, I mean, of course I'm here for that. <laughs> well, and then we also have, um, let me see here, we have... Tim Curry, who turned down the role of Mitzi, um, Tick's uh, drag queen Persona. uh, personality. Yeah. Uh, we also have John Cleese. Also, again, Tim Curry, Tony Curtis, and John Hurt 
were all considered to play Bernadette. And I super, 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 yes, again, want a trans person to actually play a trans person, but I'm here for the John Cleese playing of Bernadette. I'm here for that. I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll be totally honest. You, They could have cast Tim Curry in both roles, and I think it would have worked. Oh, so like done a Lindsay Lohan parent trap situation where he's acting off of himself? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and oh. like, like you would you would you would forget that it was Tim Curry in both roles. <laughs> I you know what? I love my current reality so much. My life is pretty great, but I do want to travel into the alternate universe if just for a couple moments to see like five minutes of that version of Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Oh absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a fun <laughs> field trip. <laughs> where is the Miss Frizzle bus that takes you to other realities? Because I super want to see that. I mean, it probably is the titular Priscilla. Oh, well, there you go. So this whole time throughout my entire life, I've heard the name of this movie. And I thought Priscilla was a person I was very glad to discover as someone who names every single vehicle she's ever owned, that Priscilla was a bus. <laughs> Absolutely. And no, I agree. Like, I, I I knew nothing about this movie. I assumed Priscilla was Terrence Stamp. You know, I thought Bernadette was <laughs> Priscilla. Um, but no, it's, it's a delightful... Um, little thing the bus you know kind of manages to become its own character um mm-hmm. in all the same ways because you know it, it gets it gets the the hate crime language spray painted on it which is kind of comparable to the near hate crime on adam and mm-hmm. it gets a the delightful coat of pink paint and then becomes like the the iconic thing people remember is you know, a pastel pink tour bus with a giant silver cape. Um, <laughs> the the bus is delightful. One of my favorite things about the bus is, you know, they filmed the whole movie in the bus. You know, all the scenes yeah. they didn't they didn't build a set or something, and so you you were cramming directors and camera people and sound people into this tiny bus, and half of the time they're just hiding under crap, like. <laughs> Like all the piles of clothes and all the hidden compartments and dressers and stuff have people shoved in them in the background. And there's something delightful about that to me. Yeah, that's why on IMDb, if you look up Priscilla Queen of the Desert on the like goof section, half of it is like, you can see the boom mic in this section. You can see the crew in this section. You can see XYZ in this section. (laughs) Which, you know, I gotta say, at least for in my watching, I never caught any of that. And I'm I'm always um, a lot more forgiving when it's like, yeah, okay, it's there. But like, you had to be pausing it and looking. And so I'm fine with that. Absolutely. So neither here nor there. But before we do our closing segments that we normally do... If you had to have a drag name, <laughs> if in an alternate life you did drag, mm. someday I will become the brilliant bio queen I knew I was always meant to be. But if you took up drag, what would your drag name be? I, I'm i always appreciative of a really good pun. But if you don't have a really good pun, 
I like alliteration. Okay. So, you know, after after seeing Priscilla and after thinking about it a little bit, if if I ever wanted to uh, go down that road, you know, I, I would put on a pair of heels. I would get a padded blouse. I would paint glitter in my beard and I would go by Myra Manning because I feel like that works. Myra is such a good drag name. Right? I love it. And then Manning also, it does kind of have that good pun of yeah. like, <laughs> kind of manly, but also not. Oh, so, I love that. What would your bio queen name be? Um, Because I'm a 90s kid, my bio queen name would be Katie Kaboom. Because you're a 90s kid, would your aesthetic be like... Like Jean '90s skater girl. Well, so Katie Kaboom is in reference to an Animaniacs uh, bit. Oh, even better. Okay, I see. <laughs> um, there was like one of their regular segments was a character named Katie Kaboom. She was an adolescent girl who she was perfectly lovely, like. 80% of the time and the whole thing was that like you never know when your little lady Katie is gonna go kaboom and then she like suddenly has PMS and just goes fucking nuts <laughs> and like I'm so extra that I'm like yes this appeals so greatly I'm here for it that's awesome that's a great bio name <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my shtick. Well, delightful. Well, speaking of shtick, we've got a couple of them. You know, the first uh-huh. one is Priscilla, the, is the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert cult. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Yeah, it's like the movie for a generation of queer people. Right. You know, we, we kind of touched on it, but you know, this has like, this is so bound in like the people who were too young for the, the initial outbreak of Rocky horror, but like too old to be there when queer eye was like resetting the stage. And this is a very special, like very like fun, movie for a a very specific um age range in the queer community you know it's quotable it's fun i think we kind of agreed it's it's not the best movie but it is camp as all hell Mm -hmm. especially the outfits um oh yeah i absolutely get it you know surprisingly it's one of the few um, financial successes that we have on the mm-hmm. show. It had a budget uh-huh. of two million and made twelve, so you know we'll take it. Well, and it also legitimately won an Oscar. Normally, we give out Oscars because our whole thing is like, oh, well, these movies won't win an Oscar anytime soon. This won an Oscar for best costumes, and it deserves it. That is the best thing. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say before even we gave uh, Oscars away, I was going to say I don't need to give like a weird, funny Oscar because truly the Oscar I would give is best costumes. There is a flip flop dress that cost 
$7, and it's why they won the Oscar. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I didn't know that, but I love that. That is perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's everything. It's, I, I could, the flip-flop dress is iconic, but like, you know, you've got the scene where they each put on their their most extravagant Vegas showgirl look and then wander out to a canyon and, and stand proudly, proudly and defiantly. Um, you know, as bad as the choreography is, the costumes when they have choreography are exquisite and exceptional. Um, yeah. no, I, I totally get it. This, this has some, this has some really amazing costumes. And, and so, you know what? Okay. Instead of coming up with a, a, a gag one, like we are want to do, I'll ask you this. What was your favorite costume? I mean, truly the flip-flop dress, even before I knew the Oscar one, but because I already brought that up, I have to say the, like, swan bird head situation is just perfect. <laughs> Absolutely, I like it. Um, I think my favorite costume, they they show it twice in the film. Um, there's the scene where Tick is being told his son has been born and what this man decides to wear in the delivery room is this amazing silver sequined three foot tall headdress like like his bustier is like a, a silver face situation <laughs> and it just looks incredible so uh, i get perfect. it oh wonderful well, you know what else is incredible? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, absolutely. <laughs> well, my friend, would you like to go first? I, I'll absolutely go first, yeah. Um, I was able to get this in two, and I went with Terrence Stamp, our, our curmudgeonly but delightful Bernadette. Uh, Terrence Stamp was in Wanted with James McAvoy. And I think we've said this on the show before. James McAvoy was, of course, in X-Men First Class with Kevin Bacon. Perfect. Okay. I also use Terrence Stamp. Oh, perfect. He was in Get Smart with Bill Murray. Who was oh, in yeah. She's Having a Baby oh, yeah, with Kevin Bacon wonderful okay so we both got it in two so we're tied for this episode i'll take the tie i love it <laughs> i know that you do hopefully we love our ne next episode well you know we'll certainly find out like i mentioned uh we put our hands in the uh hollywood crypt we put our hands in fate and sometimes it smiles on us like giving us a uh a touchstone piece of queer cinema uh, in the middle of Pride Month. And mm -hmm. sometimes it gives us Blood for Dracula and Anaconda and um, Plan 9 oh, for no. Space. No, no Anaconda. No Anaconda. <laughs> so let's see what it gives us this time. Um, 
We are going to take a little bit of a break in in honor of our two-year anniversary, which comes out three days after this. So the next episode you'll hear is either going to be Coraline or Hocus Pocus. I can't remember. But the next episode that we will... um, you know, be coming to you in our regular way is going to be number 102. And number 102 is a movie I think we, you and I were just talking about off camera. Um, uh huh. Number, or what did I say? 102. Yeah, 102 is the Robert Rodriguez action horror uh, extravaganza, George Clooney starring From oh, no. Dusk. Till dawn. Oh no. Okay. This movie is wet. <laughs> wet is not a great word. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear, my friend. Well. But because we care about our listeners keeping up the 1996. Quentin Tarantino, Danny Trejo, George Clooney starring movie from Dusk Till Dawn is available on HBO Max, YouTube, Google Play, and Vudu. Um, so let's let's get excited that's all for this edition of cult fiction if you want to keep up you can follow us at cult fiction cast on twitter and you can also rate and review our episodes on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts we'll close the crypt for now but assuming we survive our extended stint at a vampire infested uh mexican strip club uh oh no <laughs> Oh, no. You can join us as we review 1996's From Dusk Till Dawn. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Oh, my God. Wait, I just realized it is a fucking vampire movie. (laughs) Okay, Crypt. Crypt, okay. Crypt, I love you, Crypt. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. jinxed ourselves (laughs) we really did (laughs) i'm sorry it's my fault i mean i actually like this movie for the most part so no reason to apologize to me i super don't know if you're gonna like it